Offences Against Oneself, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Offences Against Oneself, Pederasty, by Jeremy Bentham. Part 2. Whether it hurts population. A notion more obvious, but perhaps not much better founded than the former, is that of its being prejudicial. Mr. Voltaire appears inclined in one part of his works to give some countenance to this opinion. He speaks of it as a vice which would be destructive to the human race if it were general. Quote, How did it come about that a vice which would destroy mankind if it were general, that an infamous outrage against nature, end quote, Question sur l'encyclopédie Amour Socratique. A little further on, speaking of Sextus Empiricus, who would have us believe that this practice was recommended in Persia by the laws, he insists that the effect of such a law would be to annihilate the human race if it were literally observed. No, says he, it is not in human nature to make a law that contradicts and outrages nature, a law that would annihilate mankind if it were observed to the letter. This consequence, however, is far enough from being a necessary one. For a law of the purport he represents to be observed, it is sufficient that this unprolific kind of venery be practised. It is not necessary that it should be practised to the exclusion of that which is prolific. Now, that there should ever be wanting such a measure of the regular and ordinary inclination of desire for the proper object, as is necessary for keeping up the numbers of mankind upon their present footing, is a notion that stands warranted by nothing that I can find in history. To consider the matter a priori, if we consult Mr. Hume and Dr. Smith, we shall find that it is not the strength of the inclination of the one sex for the other that is the measure of the numbers of mankind, but the quantity of subsistence which they can find or raise upon a given spot. With regard to the mere object of population, if we consider the time of gestation in the female sex, we shall find that much less than a hundredth part of the activity a man is capable of exerting in his way is sufficient to produce all the effect that can be produced by ever so much more. Population, therefore, cannot suffer till the inclination of the male sex for the female be considerably less than a hundredth part as strong as for their own. Is there the least probability that this should ever be the case? I must confess I see not anything that should lead us to suppose it. Before this can happen, the nature of the human composition must receive a total change, and that propensity which is commonly regarded as the only one of the two that is natural must have become altogether an unnatural one. I have already observed that I can find nothing in history to countenance the notion I am examining. On the contrary, the country in which the prevalence of this practice is most conspicuous happens to have been remarkable for its populousness. The bent of popular prejudice has been to exaggerate this populousness, but after all deductions are made, still it will appear to have been remarkable. It was such as, notwithstanding the drain of continual wars in a country parcelled out into paltry states, as to be all of it frontier, gave occasion to the continued necessity of emigration. This reason, however well grounded soever it were in itself, could not with any degree of consistency be urged in a country where celibacy was permitted, much less where it was encouraged. The proposition which, as will be shown more fully by and by, is not at all true with respect to pederasty, 
I mean that were it to prevail universally, it would put an end to the human race, is most evidently and strictly true with regard to celibacy. If then, merely out of regard to population, it were right that pederasts should be burnt alive, monks ought to be roasted alive by a slow fire. If a pederast, according to the monkish canonist Bermondus, destroys the whole human race, Bermondus destroyed it, I don't know how many thousand times over. The crime of Bermondus is I don't know how many times worse than pederasty. That there should be the least colour for supposing of this practice, that in any situation of things whatever it could have the least possible tendency to favour population, is what nobody, I suppose, would easily have suspected. Since, however, we are embarked on this discussion, it is fit that everything that can contribute to our forming a right judgment on the question should be mentioned. Women who submit to promiscuous embraces are almost universally unprolific. In all great towns, a great multitude of women will always be in this case. In Paris, for instance, the number of these women has been computed to amount to at least 10,000. These women were no more than a certain quantity of prolific vigour to be applied to them. Might all of them stand in as good a way of being prolific as other women? They would have indeed rather a better chance, since the women who came to be reduced to the necessity of embracing this profession are always those who by their beauty are more apt than an equal number of women taken at random to engage the attention of the other sex. If then all the vigour that is over and above this quantity were to be diverted into another channel, it is evident that in the case above supposed the state would be a gainer to the amount of all the population that could be expected from 40,000 women and in the proportion as any woman was less prolific by the diverting of any part of this superfluous vigour, in the same proportion would population be promoted. No one, I hope, will take occasion to suppose that from anything here said I mean to infer the propriety of affording any encouragement to this miserable taste for the sake of population. Such an inference would be as ill-founded as it would be cruel. I leave anyone to imagine what such a writer as Swift, for instance, might make upon this theme. Quote, a project for promoting population by the encouragement of pederasty. End quote. The truth is, the sovereign, if he will but conduct himself with tolerable attention with respect to the happiness of his subjects, need never be in any pain about the number of them. He has no need to be ever at the expense of any efforts levelled in a direct line at the purpose of increasing it. Nature will do her own work fast enough, without his assistance, if he will but refrain from giving her disturbance. Such infamous expedients would be improper, as any coercive ones are unnecessary. Even monks in the countries that are most infested with them are not near so pernicious by the deductions they make from the sum of population, as by the miseries which they produce and suffer, and by the prejudices of all kinds, of which they are the perpetrators and the dupes. My wonder is how any man who is at all acquainted with the most amiable part of the species should ever entertain any serious apprehensions of their yielding the ascendant to such unworthy rivals. Whether it robs women. A more serious imputation for punishing this practice is that the effect of it is to produce in the male sex an indifference to the female, and thereby defraud the latter of their rights. This, as far as it holds good in point of fact, is in truth a serious imputation. 
the interest of the female part of the species claim just as much attention and not a whit more on the part of the legislator as those of the male a complaint of this sort it is true would not come with very good grace from a modest woman but should the women be stopped from making complaint in such a case it is the business of the men to make it for them this then as far as it holds good in point of fact is in truth a very serious imputation how far it does it will be proper to inquire in the first place the female sex is always able and commonly disposed to receive a greater quantity of venereal tribute than the male sex is able to bestow if then the state of manners be such in any country as left the exertion of this faculty entirely unrestrained it is evident that except in particular cases when no object of the female sex happened to be within reach any effort of this kind that was exerted by a male upon a male would be so much lost to the community of females upon this footing the business of venereal enjoyment seems actually to stand in some few parts of the world for instance at otaheite it seems therefore that at otaheite pederasty could hardly have footing but the female part of that community must in proportion be defrauded of their rights if then pederasty were to be justified in otaheite it could only be upon this absurd and improbable supposition that the male sex were gainers by such a perversion to a greater amount than the female sex were losers but in all european countries and such others on which we bestow the title of civilized the case is widely different in these countries this propensity which in the male sex is under a considerable degree of restraint is under an incomparably greater restraint in the female while each is alike prohibited from partaking of these enjoyments but on the terms of marriage by the fluctuating and inefficacious influence of religion the censure of the world denies it the female part of the species under the severest penalties while the male sex is left free in speaking on this occasion of the precepts of religion i consider not what they are in themselves but what they may happen to be in the opinion and discourse of those whose office it is to interpret them no sooner is a woman known to have infringed this prohibition than either she is secluded from all means of repeating the offence or upon her escaping from that vigilance she throws herself into that degraded class whom the want of company of their own sex render unhappy and the abundance of it on the part of the male sex unprolific this being the case it appears the contribution which the male part of the species are willing as well as able to bestow is beyond all comparison greater than what the female part are permitted to receive if a woman has a husband she is permitted to receive it only from her husband if she has no husband she is not permitted to receive it from any man without being degraded into the class of prostitutes when she is in that unhappy class she has not indeed less than she would wish but what is often as bad to her she has more it appears then that if the female sex are losers by the prevalence of this practice it can only be on this supposition that the force with which it tends to divert men from entering into connection with the other sex is greater than the force with which the censure of the world tends to prevent those connections by its operation on the women in countries where as in otaheite no restraint is laid on the gratification of the amorous appetite whatever part of the activity of that appetite in the male sex were exercised upon the same sex 
would be so much loss in point of enjoyment to the female. But in countries where it is kept under restraint, as in Europe, for example, this is not by any means the case. As long as things are upon that footing, there are many cases in which the women can be no sufferers for the want of solicitation on the part of the men. If the institution of the marriage contract be a beneficial one, and if it be expedient that the observance of it should be maintained inviolate, we must in the first place deduct from the number of the women who would be sufferers by the prevalence of this taste all married women whose husbands were not infected with it. In the next place, upon the supposition that a state of prostitution is not a happier state than a state of virginity, we must deduct all those women who by means of this prevalence would have escaped being debauched. The women who would be sufferers by it ab initio are those only who, were it not for the prevalence of it, would have got husbands. I say ab initio, for when a woman has been once reduced to take up the trade of prostitution, she also would be of the number of those who are sufferers by the prevalence of this taste, in case the effect of it were to deprive her of any quantity of this commerce beyond that which she would rather be without. It is not, in this business, as in most other businesses, where the quantity of the object in demand is in proportion to the demand. The occupations with respect to which that rule holds good are those only that are engaged in through character, reflection, and upon choice. But in this profession scarce any woman engages for the purposes. The motive that induces a woman to engage in it is not any such circumstance as the consideration of the probability of getting custom. She has no intention of engaging in it when she takes the step that eventually proves a means of her engaging in it. The immediate cause of her engaging in it is the accident of a discovery which deprives her of every other source of livelihood. Upon the supposition, then, that a given number have been debauched, there would be the same number ready to comply with solicitation whenever so little was offered as whenever so much was offered. It is a conceivable case, therefore, that upon the increased prevalence of this taste there might be the same number of women debauched as at present, and yet all the prostitutes in the place might be starving for want of customers. The question, then, is reduced to this. What are the number of women who by the prevalence of this taste would, it is probable, be prevented from getting husbands? These and these only are they who would be sufferers by it. Upon the following considerations, it does not seem likely that the prejudice sustained by the sex in this way could ever rise to any considerable amount. Were the prevalence of this taste to rise to ever so great a height that the most considerable part of the motives to marriage would remain entire? In the first place, the desire of having children. In the next place, the desire of forming alliances between families. Thirdly, the convenience of having a domestic companion whose company will continue to be agreeable throughout life. Fourthly, the convenience of gratifying the appetite in question at any time when the want occurs and without the expense and trouble of concealing it or the danger of a discovery. Were a man's taste even so far corrupted as to make him prefer the embraces of a person of his own sex to those of a female, a connection of that preposterous kind would therefore be far enough from answering to him the purposes of a marriage. A connection with a woman may by accident be followed with disgust, but a connection of the other kind a man must know will for certain come in time to be followed by disgust.
all the documents we have from the ancients relative to this matter, and we have a great abundance, agree in this, that it is only for a very few years of his life that a male continues an object of desire even to those in whom the infection of this taste is at the strongest. The very name it went by among the Greeks may stand instead of all other proofs, of which the works of Lucian and Marshall alone will furnish any abundance that can be required. Among the Greeks it was called pederastia, the love of boys, not andrerastia, the love of men. Among the Romans the act was called pedicare, because the object of it was a boy. There was a particular name for those who had passed the short period beyond which no man hoped to be an object of desire to his own sex. They were called exoliti. No male, therefore, who has passed this short period of life could expect to find in this way any reciprocity of affection. He must be as odious to the boy from the beginning as in a short time the boy would be to him. The objects of this kind of sensuality would therefore come only in the place of common prostitutes. They could never, even to a person of this depraved taste, answer the purposes of a virtuous woman. What says history? Upon this footing stands the question when considered a priori. The evidence of facts seems to be still more conclusive on the same side. There seems no reason to doubt, as I have already observed, but that population went on altogether as fast, and that the men were altogether as well inclined to marriage among the Grecians, in whom this vicious propensity was most prevalent, as in any modern people in whom it is least prevalent. In Rome, indeed, about the time of the extinction of liberty, we find great complaints of the decline of population, but the state of it does not appear to have been at all dependent on, or at all influenced by, the measures that were taken from time to time to restrain the love of boys. It was with the Romans, as with us, what kept a man from marriage was not the preferring boys to women, but the preferring the convenience of a transient connection to the expense and hazard of a lasting one. See Pilate, Traité des lois civiles, chapitre du mariage. End of part two.